As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I don't think there's any question that Judge Kavanaugh has written abundantly about a lot of these areas that are going to inflect on questions of, can the president pardon himself? Uh, Can the president obstruct justice? Is there such a thing as obstruction of justice if you are the president of the United States? Can the president be forced to testify if he doesn't want to? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was really glad to have the chance to talk courts and politics with Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia is a well-known opinion journalist who writes for Slate, covering the Supreme Court and law and politics. She's also a frequent guest to talk about the court on television shows ranging from Rachel Maddow to The Daily Show. Dahlia writes and speaks with great clarity and understanding about her subject. It was a good time to learn from her about the Supreme Court, which is currently moving calamitously to the right. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Dahlia Lithwick from Slate and your chance to learn which sitting U.S. Senator beat her team for College Debate Team of the Year. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover the courts and the Supreme Court for Slate.com. I think I've been doing it since 1999, so almost two decades. And before that, I went to Stanford Law School. I clerked for the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I did uh, two years of divorce law in Reno, Nevada. And other than that, this is my first job. Seems like a long way from divorce law, but... Yeah, yeah. I often say if I was doing like really deeply, passionately engaging law at the time, I would still be doing it, so... Well, I I get the sense from reading and listening to you that this is something still of significant interest to you. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like... I really do feel even in these like very profoundly destabilizing times, I feel like I'm very lucky because I think the law is a really good anchor. In other words, I think if I was just a purely political reporter, 
I would be much more adrift than I am. But I think, you know, 200 years of doctrine and law and statutes and judges and courts, all the machinery of the law, even when we, we fall away from it or we ignore it or we distort it, it's just kind of sanity affording, if that makes any sense. And so I think if I were just kind of in a free fall, you know, yelling norms all the time, this would be really hard. But I think because there's still a, a world in which law has words and words have meaning and people ascribe meaning and we can agree on the meaning, like all that stuff is tremendously helpful in a political moment where everything else feels like it's up for grabs. I think that that makes a lot of sense. In a time when we see things through such a partisan viewpoint where the court is so politicized, do you think that we can expect justice out of the Supreme Court? Uh, It's a good question. I think, um, you know, I always start with the claim that Justice Breyer makes when he's asked, come on, aren't you just another purely partisan political apparatus? And he always says, look, you know, the vast majority of our cases are decided 9-0 or 8-1, and the public focuses disproportionate attention on the ones that are 5-4 down partisan lines. And so he starts from the premise that people have it wrong. Now, I don't fully accede to that worldview because I think, look, the ones that are 5-4 on political partisan lines, of which, by the way, I think there were 17 this year, you know, all the Republicans voted one way and all the Democratic appointees have voted the other. So it's certainly not purely apolitical and non-ideological. I think that what I would say is that the court has historically aspired to transcending raw politics and to transcending pure, just full on hissing, spitting partisanship. And and at its best, it does that pretty well. I think what we've seen, probably beginning with the obstruction of Merrick Garland, you know, you can carbon date it to Bork if you want, you can carbon date it to FDR court packing. I mean, certainly I think the court has always been used as a political cudgel. I I think what's different now is that this is really the first time where we saw Senate Republicans saying, we're simply not giving any person that Barack Obama puts up a hearing and a vote. And then several Senate Republicans campaigning in the November election saying, if Hillary Clinton wins, we will keep that seat open for four years or eight years. We're never going to cede control of this court. And then uh, Donald Trump, you know, appointing two people that by his lights, you know, he's pledged will do one thing and one thing only and overturn Roe. That's new. Each part of that is new. And each part of that, I think, does real violence to the idea that you're expressing, you know, that the court tries to transcend pure politics and tries, even in the most partisan times, to rise above that. I think that what we've seen in the last year and a half or two years is the erosion of the norm, even that the court pretends that that's what's going on. How do you think the Kavanaugh appointment fits into that, into this moment? Well, I mean, there are a couple things about it that are very much of this moment. One is Donald Trump 
for the first time ran overtly with a list of, no, it's a list that's changed and actually Kavanaugh wasn't on the original list, but ran with a list of people that had been fully vetted and deeply researched by, you know, he outsourced this to the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. He had virtually nothing to do with that list. And as I said, he also ran overtly on the promise that whoever he put up was going to overturn Roe. Those two things were different. When people went to the polls in November of 2016, they had those promises, those pledges to work from, and that was new. And I think that Judge Kavanaugh very much is, without a doubt, an insider's insider insider. I think the joke we were making on the TV shows earlier this week was Dick Durbin once called him, you know, the Zelig or the like, where's Waldo of movement conservative battles, because literally, whether it was Elian Gonzalez or authoring the Star Report or investigating the Vince Foster suicide or Bush v. Gore, you know, he was there for all of them. And so I think he's been part of, you know, the kind of Republican legal apparatus for a long time, in addition to which, you know, he has a very, very impressive 12-year history on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. That's the court that is most often used as the breeding grounds for new Supreme Court justices. So I think I would just say, When Donald Trump ran and said, I'm going to pick outsiders, I'm not going to pick more of the people, you know, the swamp creatures that came up through the Washington, D.C. conservative proving grounds. I think that he's quite clearly the opposite of that. And I also think he's someone who we can be very, very confident because we do have a really extensive 12 year record of how he's going to vote and and what he's going to be. So I guess. Maybe the short answer to your question or shorter than what I just uh, offered you was all of the studies that I've seen are showing that based on his record, he will likely be to the right of Sam Alito, slightly to the right of Neil Gorsuch and to the left of Clarence Thomas. So I think very, very much this will be after really a 40 year effort to install a five justice majority of conservatives who are not in Clarence Thomas's parlance, he was famously asked, you know, are you going to evolve to the left like other conservatives? And he famously said, I'm not evolving. These are not evolving movement conservatives. And so I think for the first time after really years of concerted effort to do so, Donald Trump will seat a fully 5-4 conservative Supreme Court blessed by the Federalist Society. That's a a huge triumph and a huge win. And it's why people voted for him. Do you think of yourself as an opinion journalist? How do you categorize yourself as, as a journalist? I think I, I am without a doubt an opinion journalist. I, I've never pretended to be a sort of neutral Reuters style, just the facts person. I think that one of the things that I've tried to do is be an opinion journalist who goes places and watches things and sees things. So I guess if opinion journalism is is purely, you know, sitting in the bureau in DC and writing, I've tried to not quite be that, to, to take myself to oral argument, to take myself to announcement days, to go watch hearings and watch trials. But I don't think 
I've ever tried to hide the ball about the fact that I have opinions and that it seems to me a disservice to the readers to hide that. Well, and and, so what I gather without any difficulty is that you really care about who gets seated on the court. And this triumph of the right is not your triumph. It is more of a calamity, right? I mean, I think if you, again, I don't think I've been shy about this. If you believe that women should control their own reproductive lives over 40 or 50 years or 60 years, if you believe that immigrants are fully realized people who should be treated with dignity at the border, if you believe that we have a responsibility to protect the environment, if you believe that workers should be allowed to band together and protect their own rights and effectuate those rights uh, in courts. I mean, I think that the sort of programmatic views that I have as, again, an unapologetic progressive, if you believe that your vote should matter and that gerrymandering and voter purges and the fraud of vote fraud, if you believe that those things matter, then this will be, I think your word is correct, calamitous. I think if you look no further than the end of this past term, where, as I said, Anthony Kennedy, ostensibly the swing voter, didn't swing once, voted with the conservative bloc in every single case and, you know, three incredibly consequential voting cases, uh, which will erode, I think, the right to vote, especially if you are a person of color or if you are poor or if you're old or if you're young, voted to profoundly undermine the ability of unions to organize, uh, profoundly undermine the possibility of workers to vindicate their rights. This whole term in the aggregate was just a massive, massive blow. And that is just beyond the sort of masterpiece cake shop and the other kind of cultural religious flashpoint cases. But in in one instance after another, I think uh, the courthouse doors closed, uh, big business won, the environment lost, women lost. This was not a good term. And I think that to the extent that we, for the last few years since Sandra Day O'Connor left the bench and Anthony Kennedy was considered a swing vote, I think it's certainly fair to say John Roberts will be the swing vote after October. And John Roberts is, by every data set that I've seen, one of the 10 most conservative jurists in the last hundred years at the Supreme Court. So if he's the guy uh, who's going to be the median voter, I think we're about to see literally the single most conservative court we've seen in over a hundred years. And it's, it's simply the case that, at least from my vantage point, that's not going to redound to the benefit of women and of the poor and of people of color, of voters, uh, of the environment, LGBTQ Americans, uh, those folks are going to suffer in meaningful ways. And that's going to be the case for possibly generations now. You know, I, I think I'm right in the same place where you are politically, at least as you describe it. And But there, it's to me, there's even a larger thing potentially at stake with Trump as president, which is 
we could come down to some kind of case which has to do with executive power where he is resisting something coming out of the Justice Department and a court configured the wrong way could let him get away with something. How do you think the court, you would know better than me what that might be, but how do you think the court as constituted maybe with Kavanaugh on it would respond in a situation like Nixon tapes or or something like that? I mean, it's a great question. I think it's the question. And I think that going into confirmation hearings, one of the things that we need to be really mindful of is that Judge Kavanaugh has written extensively about the questions you're raising about the scope of executive power, about uh, what we call Chevron deference, which is how much the courts defer to agencies' interpretations of their own rules. He's written about something which we call the unitary executive theory, which once upon a time was seen as a little bit of a kind of slightly crackbody notion about the president's control over all um, agencies in the executive branch. But it's certainly when Rudy Giuliani talks about the president's power to fire Jim Comey or possibly pardon himself, he's citing to that doctrine, to that theory. So I don't think there's any question that Judge Kavanaugh has written abundantly about a lot of these areas that are going to inflect on questions of, can the president pardon himself? Uh, Can the president obstruct justice? Is there such a thing as obstruction of justice if you are the president of the United States? Can the president be forced to testify if he doesn't want to? And so I think all of these, and and, you know, famously, uh, everybody is citing an article that Judge Kavanaugh wrote in 2009, a a Law Review article in which he certainly intimates that the president can't be sued civilly or uh, convicted uh, in a criminal proceeding while he's in office. I think that article is being misread a little bit. I think what Judge Kavanaugh was suggesting in that piece was that Congress should pass a law that protects the president, not that constitutionally the president is immune. But we do have, I think, a lot to work with. And so To your question, what does that mean? Look, I think you can take some comfort in the fact that both the Nixon tapes case and uh, the Paula Jones case were decided 9-0 and that the court tries in these kinds of big ticket, you know, when you're hauling a president in front of a tribunal like that, they try very, very hard. Uh, not to have the appearance of splitting down ideological lines. And so if we can take those two precedents as any meaningful kind of marker of what the court would do, I think somebody who is in his bones an institutionalist like like John Roberts, which is, as you'll recall, that's probably why he flipped in the Affordable Care Act cases. It might be hard for him to sign off on a 5-4 opinion saying, you know, the president can't be forced to testify or the president can pardon himself. And so I think one hopes that on those kinds of big, big macro cases, should they arise, the court can, if for no other reason than out of concern for institutional prerogatives and the institutional regard for the court, shake themselves out of the partisan logjam and and do something that is bigger than that. But I, I think you're certainly right to say that where Donald Trump is right now, which is on a collision course 
with Robert Mueller and a sort of daily assertion that Mueller doesn't have the authority to be investigating him and that Rod Rosenstein and Jeff Sessions serve at his sufferance. And if he decides to fire either of them tomorrow and terminate the probe, he could do that. I mean, each of those issues, I think, could conceivably come before a Supreme Court at some point. And I think maybe the last thing I would say is that to the extent that we have any one lawsuit that can shine some light on how the court is going to treat Trumpism as Trumpism, I think it's the travel ban decision that came down uh, just a few weeks ago, because that really was, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of cases that implicate claims made by Donald Trump, but but the travel ban was really the first case where the court sorely had to contend with Donald Trump doing something that was fundamentally unlawful as it was originally conceived, and then trying to clean it up for the courts. And we saw what happened by a five to four margin. The court blessed that and chose to ignore the parts of it that were unconstitutional or unlawful. And I think I I try not to, to look at that as a harbinger of what the same court with Kavanaugh in for Kennedy might do uh, in another situation where Donald Trump does something that is just markedly unlawful and also, by the way, gratuitous and cruel and pointless. And, And I don't have as much hope as I did, say, three months ago that the court would act as a bulwark against that. I I think that was an opportunity to brush back some of the really grotesque religious animus that pervaded the travel ban. And I think that the failure of the court to do that across partisan lines was quite worrisome for me. When you look at the Senate as it's currently constituted, it's pretty hard to see how they stop a confirmation short of some major revelation coming up about Kavanaugh. Do you agree? I agree. I think it's going to be not only impossible for a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski to peel off and oppose him, but I also think you really do have, you know, the Heidi Heitkamps and, and other red state Democrats that would vote against him at their peril. So I, I think you're quite right that the idea that somebody's going to flip or that all the Democrats are going to be able to hold together uh, at risk of some Senate seats, is it's a hard lift. I don't disagree. Do you think it's worth, you know, there's still plenty of activists and groups on the left that are working hard to try to influence politicians and public opinion. Do you think that battle is worthwhile right now? I do. And I think it's worthwhile in part because we forgot to fully mount this battle in the 2016 election when we could have, and we might've made a difference. I think it's a really important teachable moment about why the courts matter. I think, again, the failure of Democrats, especially Democrats running uh, for the Senate in 2016, to stand up every single day and say, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland, this seat was stolen. And this is why it matters, I think was a a hugely consequential failure. And so to me, the idea that we're going to give that up again, and we're not going to make those arguments again in the public sphere, it's not just that it's, it's dangerous, but I think it becomes its own 
self-fulfilling prophecy where we convince voters somehow that maybe it doesn't matter either. And I think particularly, you know, it was one thing to replace Antonin Scalia with Neil Gorsuch that wasn't a change that was going to change the face of American jurisprudence. But I think that if we fail to say to American voters going into the midterms and also going into this hearing, that what is literally on the chopping block right now is the future of affirmative action. It's the future of voting, you know, meaningful voting rights, absent gerrymandering and vote purges. It's the future of holding big businesses to account and doing away with unbelievably burdensome, you know, mandatory arbitration clauses. And it's the future of unions and labor. It's the future of environmental protection, women's, not just reproductive rights in terms of Roe, but also I think the right to contraception, which is also under assault. Each and every one of those things is an issue on which I think Democrats deeply care. Some may rank those in different orders, but I think that they care. And the idea that all of that could be lost with the stroke of a pen, whether it's Roe or whether it's affirmative action, which I think will be the first to go, or robust protections for gay Americans. I mean, the idea that that's all going to be determined by replacing Justice Kennedy with Justice Kavanaugh, and we're not going to have really a a loud and vocal and focused and organized conversation about that terrifies me because it's a way of saying, yet again, maybe the courts don't matter. And I think you probably have now heard me say, I think failure to believe that the courts matter cost the 2016 election. Is there any risk in sort of damaging the court by suggesting how political it is? Well, again, I think that's one of those goose gander problems. I think that Democrats are very, very careful to stay within the aspirational guidelines of talking about the courts and to not say the whole thing is, you know, an institution of partisan hacks. But remember, you know, it was Chuck Grassley who got up on the Senate floor after Justice Scalia died and literally gave an unbelievable speech in which he cautioned John Roberts uh, not to say a single word about the vacancy at the court and the fact that Republicans were holding it open and said, you know, you, John Roberts, have politicized the court. You're the, you defected uh, in cases. You're the reason people has, have lost confidence in the court. So you had better keep your mouth shut. And don't forget, John Roberts said nothing for the almost year that that seat stood empty. And so I think that this is another one of those you know, are you going to continue to have lofty language about a nonpartisan court while the other side single-handedly dismantles the notion of a nonpartisan court? So, of course, it's horrifically damaging to the institution, not just of the Supreme Court, but all Article Three judges in courts to suggest that this is a political fight. But I think that if the institution is going to die anyway, and is really being stolen and eviscerated anyway, then the choice to be silent strikes me as pretty short-sighted. So nobody, I guess in short, grieves more than I do about really, I think, the casual destruction of public confidence in the courts that this kind of politicization does. But I think that the thing I grieve more is that 
you know, when Merrick Garland uh, was nominated, there were millions and millions of dollars of dark money that went into ads to propagate just full on lies about his record on the Second Amendment. It was answered by virtually nothing on the left to protect him. And that doesn't, I think, protect the integrity of the court. It just reads as silence and lack of caring. So I think given how organized the Republicans have been about taking these seats and seating people who will be single-minded about moving the court to the right, the notion that we're going to protect the institution by just being good soldiers and talking magically about it just strikes me as, as, as absolutely mistaken in every way. The midterm coming up, you've made a series of sort of abstract or less abstract arguments about you know, a vast number of issues that the court might affect. But we're up against a guy who speaks at a fourth grade level and kind of blunt forced campaigns on made up things and and lies. And how do you think Democrats should make the case or progressives should make the case on the court, given that there's so many things rather than just one thing to worry about? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of arguments. One of the most interesting things I've heard was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island was on my podcast last weekend, and I asked him this very question, you know, how do we message this in a way that's salient? And, and I think he made a really important point that maybe it's too thinky and abstract, but I, you know, he, he points out that 70% of Americans across ideological lines really hate Citizens United. They hate how dark money has corroded and destroyed politics and elected politics as we know it. And his point was simply that the huge infusion of dark money into not just the litigation around the court, which is one piece of it, but actual seating of actual justices is something that folks should care about. And and his point, I think, is not so complicated. He simply said in every case this year that mattered to folks who don't have money, big business won every single time. And they won because it's paid for by big business. And his point was simply, if Americans are tired of corruption and of elections being bought and sold and of judicial seats being bought and sold, an idea that they could organize around would be to make sure that the court itself uh, isn't bought and sold. And I I don't think that's so abstract that it can't be understood. Uh, The idea that the court should be one place where millions of dollars of unaccountable dark money is pouring into both judicial nominations and litigation. But I I think the other point that I would make is simply voting. Uh, I think if you look at the trifecta of voting rights cases this year, one including a racial gerrymander from Texas that came down on the three-year anniversary of Shelby County that gutted, you know, core provisions of the Voting Rights Act, the two gerrymander cases, Gill and Benesek, and the voter purge case out of Ohio, Houston. This has been, I think, a historically 
awful and horrifying year for voting rights. And I think it's going to mean that in future, there will be more partisan gerrymandering. There will be more partisan vote purges. Uh, there will be more racial gerrymandering, all things that we thought we were trending away from. And so one of the things I would just say, and I know this sounds super meta, I don't think it needs to, is that the court is setting the guideposts for a kind of permanent minority rule, that we have a minority you know, entity in the Senate, we have a, a president that was elected by the minority of the voters, and now a Supreme Court that is enshrining that the Republican Party gets the lion's share of seats going forward. And I think that that, again, it seems like something that could motivate Democrats who want their vote to have some meaning to say, this isn't just, you know, my team, your team. This is enshrining a permanent minority rule in this country, often uh, bolstered by huge money and weird kleptocracy, that that's something that we could organize and care around, that if we want our vote to matter after the next census, then we cannot have a Supreme Court that is fully in the tank for vote purges and partisan gerrymandering. I, I guess as I'm saying it to you, I think, wow, if I couldn't say that in fourth grade terms, maybe it's not as salient as I think it is. But I, I, I just think we fail to reckon with how badly the right to vote has been damaged this term at our peril. You're you're doing nothing but depressing me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, there's some reporting that was possibly alarming about why Kennedy decided to resign or step down when he did. What's your view on on that? I haven't seen it supported enough by any real facts. And, you know, the, the actual NBC report that was alarming, you know, that there was some deal wherein he agreed to step down in exchange for getting Kavanaugh was quickly uh, withdrawn. So absent seeing that kind of thing corroborated, I can't call it a scandal. I, I can say that I think that watching Anthony Kennedy, who I mean, I've been watching him for 20 years and I held him out as somebody who, you know, his watchword was dignity. And that appears time and time and time again, especially in the seminal opinions, you know, in Obergefell and in some of the reproductive rights cases. And, and I held him out in my head as somebody who is outside of the pure partisan bubble of white hats and black hats and good guys and bad guys and just pure partisan outcomes. I saw him as somebody for whom the suffering of people and the loss of dignity of people materially mattered to him. And so I looked at this whole year and I said, here's a guy who stayed on the court. We knew he wanted to retire last June. He stayed on because that Muslim ban case was bothering him because the gerrymandering cases, you know, have been bothering him for decades. Uh, the idea that you could be districted out of having your vote matter bothered him. Uh, I, I thought that a lot of the cases that came before the court this year were issues on which at the end of the day, 
not that he would, you know, join the liberals and defect, but he would see actual harm and actual suffering to the dignitary interests of people. Maybe the cake baker case, Masterpiece Cake Shop is the best example of that. You know, here's a person who wrote so poignantly about the dignitary interests of same-sex marriage uh, in the Obergefell case. The idea that you could just violate a state public accommodations law because you don't like gay marriage, I thought would offend him. And I think for me, the real tragedy of Anthony Kennedy, you know, we may find there may be reporting about his son and Deutsche Bank and relationships with the Trumps. I don't know. I, I mean, in some ways, the idea that they're all sort of fishing from the same privileged pond is depressing on its own merits. But I think more than that, just the idea that the Anthony Kennedy I thought I believed in all these years that who really lay up at night and worried when human dignity was being affronted by legal architecture, that, that guy just disappeared. And he disappeared before he walked away from the court. He disappeared in the last few months of the term. And for me, I think one version of this is that, you know, we all were under this illusion that he was a swing voter and he never was in play. But for me, it's almost more visceral than that. I, I, I genuinely believed all the speeches he's given over the years that I've covered about the rule of law and about the independence of the judiciary and about the coarseness of public discourse. For that guy to hand his legacy over to Donald Trump is, is I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still not recovered from that. So you can call that what you want. I don't know if it's about, you know, deep corruption, as the reporting implied, or just a sense that, well, maybe I'm not the guy to save America, drops Mike. Either way, it's a pretty dispiriting outcome. And, I, and I'm surprised. I, I, I thought he was a different person. Maybe he got tired. Dude, we're all tired. (laughs) You know, one of the things that's curious to me is that in the arena of the courts, Trump seems to have comparatively notable discipline. Either he's just subcontracting that thing for some reason. He seems to be able to willing to mostly read a speech. He seems to pick from a list. He's not doing that with respect to NATO or immigration. And, and, and you know, if you go back in his history, a lot of the values that he's supporting with the nominations he's making are not aligned with where he may have been in the 80s or 70s or 90s. What do you make of where he's landed and why it is this way? That's such a great question. I mean, I think this is just one area where he is fundamentally aware that he doesn't know what he's talking about and that doesn't stop him, you know, in the foreign policy context or the economy. I mean, his failure to know what he's talking about doesn't stop him from charging forward. I think because there is this massive machinery that is the Federalist Society, that is, you know, movement conservatism that has spent four decades organizing around the proposition that we will never be borked again. We will never be David Sutard again. Like the only people who will be allowed on the court, and that's why Harriet Meyer's nomination is killed. This is a machine that has been unbelievably effectively organized and ginned up 
And it's the machine that blocked Merrick Garland. And it is the machine to which I truly believe Donald Trump is beholden. I think that when he would go to rallies in 2016 before the election and say, particularly to evangelicals, look, you may hate me, but I'm going to give you Roe. And so you're going to vote for me. And all the exit polls show that, you know, of the people who prioritize the court, they broke for him two to one. And I think that he is conceding in some sense that he owes them this presidency. And because he doesn't understand it, why not just stand back and let Don McGahn, you know, White House counsel and the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and Leonard Leo just do the work? I don't think he cares enough about constitutional outcomes to care whether Brett Kavanaugh's views map onto his, because I just don't think he cares a lot about constitutional outcomes. The constitutional outcomes he cares about have to do with his power and his authority and this almost unfettered view of presidential power he has. And I suspect, by the way, that's why Brett Kavanaugh was interesting to him, because Kavanaugh has written a lot suggesting that he agrees that the president should have unbelievably sweeping authority. But I think beyond that, he just, he doesn't care if abortion ends. He doesn't care if the environment is pillaged. He doesn't care if workers have rights. I think he'd prefer workers not to have rights. And so there's very little about the Federalist Society program that offends him. And I think at the same time, he probably knows himself well enough to know that if left to his own devices and he picked Justice Kim Kardashian, it wouldn't necessarily redound to his benefit. So in a weird way, this is just him knowing that there's a machine out there that can do it better and that will do it better. And then I think, you know, the other coda to that that's really interesting is the places that he's not disciplined around the court. So in the same week that he's talking about the grandeur of the Constitution and the rule of law, he's going after immigration judges and saying we shouldn't have any immigration judges. And, you know, he's been routinely uh, going after courts and individual judges by name sometimes that he doesn't like. So in a weird way, the discipline only goes one way. You're right. He manages to stay on script when he has to stand and introduce a new, new jurist to the country. But within seconds, he's trashing fundamental pillars of judicial independence. And that hasn't stopped at all. So he's on message. And at the same time, he's kind of got a tell in which he's letting us know constantly that he actually has very little regard for an independent judiciary and for the courts and the Constitution. Uh, and he has not managed to check that at all. You've talked quite a bit about the machinery on the right with respect to judges and the Constitution and nominees and so on. There's been, a, as you, you're aware, quite a, an attempt on the left to match that with the American Constitution Society and other groups. How well do you think we're doing in matching that apparatus? I think that it's partly a time delay. You know, the Federal Society has a, a big time jump on um, ACS. There are amazing groups on the left doing the work of bringing the issue of the courts to the forefront and trying to groom law students and place them with the right clerks and have, you know, the, the, the clerks go to feeder judges and have those feeder judges feed them on 
to uh, Supreme Court. So there's an attempt, I think, to try to match it. But again, I think it's it's taken it's going to take a while to gin up. And I also think that on the left, and this is just a case uh, that we see in so many components of the progressive movement writ large, which is just there isn't the willingness to subordinate everything for this one outcome. And so, A, I don't think there's a huge feeling on the left that the courts matter more than anything. That's, as I said, part of a 40-year, you know, Mies-driven movement that doesn't really have an analog on the left. But then I also think that, you know, when you ask yourself, what does a liberal judge or justice do? I think you're very quickly in this kind of funny quagmire of, I don't know, do I want another Bill Brennan? You know, do I want another Thurgood Marshall? Maybe I want an Elena Kagan, who's kind of a center left, but a really good negotiator and knows how to get to fight. I mean, there just isn't the same absolute, coherent, both the language around it, you know, there's no language on the left that says, you know, strict construction, don't make it up on the fly, you know, you're just an umpire. All of that rhetoric is so powerful when conservatives talk about what they want in a judge, even if it's ultimately just like blah, 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 Charlie Brown, you know, teacher talk. It's very compelling. There's no analog on the left. I think if you asked most organizers even on the left. What does a progressive judge do in your view? The answer is really confounding and complicated and it has something to do with kind of counter-majoritarian checks on, you know, the power of the elected branch. But it's just not as soundbitey. And so I think it's going to require both recalibrating the message, recalibrating do we really want to be the party of the frozen trucker? You know, where, where Al Franken was so focused when he was questioning Neil Gorsuch on like, do you just hate truckers? Do you just want them to freeze? Um, and on one hand, you know, it's, it was a pretty effective set of questions, but I think that there's a better way to talk about what progressive legal theory is and what, what progressives do that can be as compelling as balls and strikes and, you know, strict construction, and we just enforce the Constitution. But I also just think some of the work of persuading voters that this matters, and that, you know, if you care about the Affordable Care Act, there's a case that is going to make its way up to the court that is going to gut it. And that matters, and the courts matter. And I think that that's beyond the sort of scope of what ACS and other progressive legal groups have necessarily fully managed to do. I think, like I say, that's not a failing of those groups. I think it's a question of there's decades of advance work on this that happened on the right that just didn't happen on the left. And I think that we are going to want to very, very soon, possibly before the hearing, get really clear on what it is that we're telling voters beyond just Roe may be overturned that they care about and why the courts make that come to pass. So I, I think it's a, it's a, almost a, a messaging problem as much as it is an organizing problem. Yeah, it seems like you want the court to worry about the little guy and you want the court to worry about your basic rights and not the rights of big institutions and corporations and so on. And Maybe that's the 
which is sort of what you referred to earlier. Maybe that's the direction. Hey, would you indulge me for a second with just some qu- answer some questions about your career? Because I think you have landed in a really enviable spot. And, and I think that people who are young, who are interested in politics, maybe they can't all become the Supreme Court correspondent somewhere, but it's a pretty interesting path. I noticed that you did some debate in college with a guy named Austin Goolsby, which which I noted because I was a freshman counselor at Yale in 91, and I think he was in the group that I was supposed to be looking after. Did that play a part of it? What, what got you going down this path towards the law? So first, I have to just offer up the fun fact, which is that Austin and I uh, lost team of the year, I think in 1990, to a renegade debater from Princeton called Ted Cruz. Um, so that's, that, <laughs> that's a fun fact. I think that I, you know, I definitely was not just for all four years uh, in college, but wait for it, uh, all five years of high school. I say five years because I grew up in Ontario where we had five years. So I am a lifelong debate nerd. And I think that that definitely was a huge part. And I say this, especially for women who are listening in a huge part of just getting to the place where I was comfortable standing up and just talking uh, in front of groups, because it's funny, just this morning, I had breakfast with a super brilliant friend of mine who works for uh, one of the groups. And she was saying, I just, I don't understand. I see you on Maddow and you're like, not actually like in a pool of your own urine. Like, how do you do it without getting nervous. And it's just really, I think debate was such a, a crucial part of getting comfortable speaking. And I think it is certainly true if this is the implication that the entirety of the debate team went to law school. I actually didn't. After I graduated, I actually had been working for a few summers. Paul Newman, as you may remember, had this amazing camp right outside New Haven for terminally ill kids and kids with AIDS and HIV. And so I had been working at that camp for a few years. And in my time off after college, I wrote a book about it. And I got really interested in when I was working with the families in the book, healthcare and issues of pre-existing conditions, the kinds of things that we think about now, but in you know 1991 was pretty weird, but trying to understand how each and every one of the kids in the book had somehow been roped out of any kind of meaningful health care for what were really horrible, chronic, often life-threatening illnesses. So I think the reason I ended up deciding to go to law school, despite the fact that I knew I was not born to be a lawyer, was that I really just felt like somebody needs to be working on the sort of policy side of health care, particularly kids' health care. So I, I almost entirely applied to law school by accident, just thinking, I guess I want to be a policy person and I can't do math, so I can't go to med school. So I guess I'll do healthcare stuff. And I wasn't the person who went to law school wanting clerkships or, you know, I never was a summer associate at a firm. I never thought I would be taking depositions and collecting documents for discovery. I I always thought I wanted to do something different. I think I surprised myself again by becoming a journalist, but I think I could say that it really was in some sense at the time, this kind of concern about injustice, the feeling that these poor families, the ones I was working 
for, you know, when I was writing the book, the ones I was working with were almost entirely without resources. And it seemed like when the single worst thing that could befall a family with a young child happened, the idea that they didn't then have health care just struck me as unjust and that they were spending all of their time instead of caring for their sick child on the phone trying to get some procedure or another approved. I think that was the thing that probably drove me to law school. What was the moment of the move into journalism? Funny story. I just was a really crap lawyer. I think that was the move that I I did do. Uh, I clerked. I loved clerking. Even when I was clerking, I was my because the judge I worked for, who I adored, was the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. I was writing his speeches and his op eds, and I was already feeling this pull of doing sort of writing for lay people as much as you know, writing draft opinions. And then I did two years um, at a divorce law firm and I just sucked at it. I was horrible. And so I think once I left, I just, again, this is pure serendipity, but happened to be kind of driving through Washington, D.C., quite at odds about what I was going to do. My parents were horrified. And um, Slate Magazine was only a year or two out, and they were looking for somebody to cover the Microsoft trial. They called a dear friend of mine. <laughs> she said, I have a job, but this person won't get off my futon. So I took the call and sort of staggered into the Microsoft, the big Microsoft antitrust trial, without understanding what was going on or knowing what an operating system was or really even understanding what antitrust law was. And I just told jokes for Slate for a few weeks. And it was kind of a perfect, I mean, I think in in a sense, and maybe this was in your initial question, but it's been such a perfect fit for me that I was lucky because I think I found a form and a forum and a way to talk about the law, like a sports writer or like a theater critic that was such a just authentic for me fit for what I love to do that I just never left. (laughs) We've gotten through this to, you know, to be on the daily show or to be on television talking about these sort of things and you do an excellent job at it. What have been the highlights for you? Huh? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I won't lie. It's really fun to meet Colbert. It's fun to do Maddow, it's fun to win awards. But I, I think more and more, and this is just going to make me sound like a grumpy old grandpa, but I think more and more I'm loving meeting 17, 18, 19-year-olds who come up to me after a speech and say, oh, and oh my God, this makes me feel ancient. But they say, oh, you know, we listen to your podcast and then we fight about it in our classes. Or, oh, you know, we read your stuff and at my house and then my dad and I scream at each other at the dinner table. And I I think that what I've come to find really rewarding is that the quality that I always wanted to bring to this work was, look, I'm not a law professor. I'm not writing for law professors. And I think that the law is really unnecessarily mystified, sometimes by design, sometimes just by carelessness. But I wanted people to be able to think about the law the way they think about sports or movies. And I wanted it to be accessible and urgent to them. And I was willing to sometimes be a dork to do it. So whether it was, you know, using humor or using dumb analogies to try to make people understand that this 
affects their life every day and that you can't gloss over it and leave it to the experts. And I think that what I've come to love is that there are, you know, little kids like sixth and seventh graders that I get to talk to who say afterwards, like, yeah, yeah, I kind of understood the Muslim ban thing after I listened to you, or I kind of understood the Kate Baker case after I read something you wrote. And for me, I think, again, I'm just sounding sentimental, but I think that this generation that's coming up, you know, my kids are 15 and 13. They're so smart. (laughs) They're so, I mean, beyond the Parkland kids, they're just kind of big hearted in a way that I think we weren't. And they're confident in their ability to understand things in a way that we weren't. And so I think for me more and more, especially in the last year where it's easy to lose heart, is to just see these kids who don't seem to be sort of broken by the moment. They seem to be really energized by the possibility that we could have a conversation about the Second Amendment we didn't think we could have in America. We could have a conversation about healthcare and voting. And so I think for me that really, I know that's a corny answer. Uh, it sounds like a Miss America answer. I just want world peace. Uh, but I think, I think for me it's really like that's given me unbelievable strength when I get grumpy and tired is that I think that this work of saying like, wait, 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 don't walk away. You think you don't understand gerrymandering. Hell, I don't understand, you know, the efficiency gap in Gil, but like, let's figure it out together. And to, to sort of be rewarded by having people who are going to college or going to law school and saying, yeah, yeah, no, this really helped me it was a portal into a world I didn't think I cared about or understood. That's been magic for me this year. Dahlia, I could uh, gladly talk to you all day and I have lots of other questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. So I think that was a good note on which to end, unless there's something else you want to say. I think I just, all I want to say is that people should fight like it matters. That's what I want to say. <laughs> it's that, uh, yeah, I think I yelled at you 20 minutes ago that we're all tired, damn it. But I think uh, I think this is going to be a defining moment and that that when I look at what I am in love with in the Bill of Rights, you know, just the presumptions of dignity and equality and compassion and the presumptions that I think are baked into the constitution as I understand it. I, I, I think, I think that's, that's worth fighting for. That's, that's, I think what I want to say. That was Dahlia Lithwick. She's at at Dahlia Lithwick on Twitter. Dahlia is one of the opinion journalists whose work I think is most worth following. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the great battlefield podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.